Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bleeps and Bloops podcast. This is June 15th and we've got a great interview today with composer and studio head uh, Jessica Curry from the Chinese Room uh, talking about a lot of things, including Everyone's Gone to the Rapture, their upcoming PS4 exclusive. So it's been a while since the last time we talked. Jim Welch, founder of this podcast, has gone on to start a new company that I think we've talked about before on the podcast called Kinski. And the idea behind Kinski is to set up uh, a video chat, but in a way that parents, especially parents that are traveling, uh, grandparents, military, uh, can have uh, meaningful interactions with their kids long distance through video chat by incorporating games and some more interactive activities. And I know for me, at least with our two four-year-olds, uh, the talking with grandma and grandpa on Skype or FaceTime or whatever is really, really complicated. So uh, Jim and his team are currently hold away uh, on a three-month, I don't know, I guess you could call it a boot camp, being given some seed money and some instruction on how to build their business. So Jim is still doing some game audio stuff, but he's focusing most of his attention on this new venture, and we wish him all the luck with that. Uh, myself, I've been busy in the process of moving out to Florida um, to uh, be on the ground um, at Magic Leap. I've been uh, flying back and forth for the last six months, uh, working out of my home and studio in Austin and then a week a month in Florida. But we're packing up our boxes and belongings this week and moving out there the following week. So it's, it's a real thing and we're really excited about this new adventure for us. But the best thing that's happened in the last couple of weeks is that I had the chance to finally talk with Jessica Curry. The first GDC that I went to uh, as kind of a full audio track pass holder uh, was in 2013, and uh, Jess was there talking about Dear Esther, and I don't think I had played it yet, but I was sitting with a bunch of people, and we just could not get over how impactful this talk was for us. Uh, it was, again, my first real GDC in sense of what those talks are like, but it just really embodied what I what I hoped to get out of GDC. You know, we got insight into her background. We got insight into her process. We got a lot of insight into the game itself. Uh, lots of samples of music, uh, both kind of at the very, very beginning stages of the process and then all the way at the end, you could kind of hear the development of the, of the songs and the themes that she came up with. So it was really, really fascinating. And still, even after being uh, around for a few more years and going to a few more GDCs, it's still this high watermark for me. Uh, but she and her team uh, back in Brighton, uh, the Chinese room, have been so busy with this PS4 exclusive, everyone's gone to the rapture, that they haven't been back to GDC in the, in the passing years. So this was a great uh, selfish, I guess, way for me to get to know her and to, to hear her story firsthand. So this is a great uh, interview that we've got with her, and we'll go ahead and roll that now. Sorry. 
So you guys are in the thick of it then. I'm surprised that we even made this work with how close you guys must be to the, the tail end of this. It's crazy times here at the Chinese room. It's all good fun, but the team are working properly, exceptionally hard. They're really dedicated and very uncomplaining actually. Very appreciated because it is, you know what it's like. It's just a thousand things every day. So how long has it been now in development? Has it been three or four years? Yeah, three years. So it's been a massive labor of love and it's a tiny team. You know, it's a really, really ambitious game in terms of size, scale, scope. How There's no template for it. We're not, there's no games that we can say, well, we want it to be a bit like that. It is hopefully really breaking the mold. So... We made life really difficult for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was looking on the website last night, and I think I counted 14 pictures on the website. Is that about the size of the team? That is indeed. We've got um, four artists wow. who are just making it look so extraordinary. I can't believe what they have done. Three of those artists are straight out of university. It's their first job. So, yeah, talented bunch of people. Yeah, and I included this as one of the things that I wanted to talk about, but I remembered uh, a couple of years ago that uh, you all had kind of an, an, an open casting call for animators and, and audio people, and I think, if I remember right, there were two or three jobs, and you received like 400 applications. And the thing that I remember was this blog post that followed, just providing all of this really meaningful feedback to the 396 or, or however many that didn't get the gig. And I showed that to my students for years uh, as just a way of, you know, kind of encapsulating what it takes to get into the industry. Oh, thank you. That's so nice to hear. It's very sweet. So for us, what was really, really important was that some that people had some connection to the Chinese room in terms of the kind of games that we make. We got a lot of strong applications but they didn't stand out from the crowd because they were quite generic in nature and covering letters were actually really really important because we really got the sense of people's personality their interests their dreams their passions and it was where their in individual voices came through really because so many people that sent their cvs through had a huge amount of experience and were really talented and really good at what they do so in a way 
it was hard to judge on that alone. And it was when people said, I played, and it wasn't about flattering our ego, but when they said, I played Dear Esther, this is what it meant to me. This is what I want from the games industry. We felt that there was going to be a connection with that person. And we make such personal games that it felt like having that human connection was a really important part of what we were looking for, actually, in people. Hmm. Was there anything specific about the type of uh, demos that um, that people turned in? I, I know as in going to GDC for the last couple of years, they've started to stress more interactive implementation-based demos as opposed to you know something linear. Were you finding that you you're getting more of that interactive stuff in the demos, or are they still fairly you know like a demo reel? Yeah, we got a mixture of stuff, actually. We did get some interactive things, but again, I wouldn't say for the Chinese room that was the most important thing. Some of the audio demos that we got weren't the most technically proficient, perhaps, but again, there was something in there that spoke of an ability to communicate. It had heart, it had passion, and of course, technical skills are really, really important but it was also Adam Hay, who we ended up employing as our audio designer. There was a sensitivity in his work. It wasn't just technical showmanship, which a lot of people, especially with the tools that we have at our disposal now, are capable of doing. But Adam's had that, it's kind of that mystical X factor, really. It's the thing that you can't really put into words, but just makes you feel something. And Adam, we were really lucky, had that, great mix of the technical ability but marrying that with something really poetic and we got the audio designers then to do a test we gave them some um, footage from the game and said this is the kind of feeling we left it very loose we kind of said this is what we want to achieve with this scene and then they came back and again it was really really interesting to hear how different people's interpretations were but Adam stood ahead because he connected with the world on a deep level. And that's the thing that's hard to teach. I'm sure you know it's the well, thing that is so undefinable. Well, and it seems like that's not an obvious path to take in applying for a games job either, to be sensitive and thoughtful. Uh, it's just kind of throwing as much stuff as the wall and, at the wall and see what sticks kind of Transformers style. So that's interesting. And also that when Adam came to interview, I think we interviewed six or eight people, we're quite an intellectual company in that we talk a lot, we think a lot, we're very, very conceptual. And Adam had, that again, that additional skill as well as the sensitivity and the technical. Sounds like I'm his proud mother, but he really is kind of very uh, special designer, I think. Um, he had the, the smarts, as I believe you Americans would say, to kind of really think about um, what we were trying to achieve intellectually with this game. And it's very, very conceptual. So it's a really, really complex mix of skills that we were asking for, and it was a big ask. And we were lucky enough to get it. So as a composer for the studio and also a studio head, you probably see a lot of, and have a lot of these different interactions with employees that a composer might typically on a game, um, what's your your day to day life as a <clears throat> composer slash studio head? 
And I know that varies wildly, I'm sure. It, yeah, and that's the thing. But I, I'm laughing because this week has been the most crazy mix of jobs and the amount of hats that I'm wearing. So, for example, um, I speak to our lawyer regularly about contractual issues. Um, we're doing our company accounts at the moment, which are very complex for various reasons. So a lot of contact with the accountants. Um, Tom, our studio manager, and I are in constant contact about how the game is running and the production side of it. I'm working with Adam, the sound designer, reviewing what he's done, talking about still the concepts, implementation. We talk to Sony every night at the moment in America because we're so close to final. So usually two or three conversations running till at least nine, ten o'clock. Talking really, to Dan, day. yeah, every day at the moment, every night for us. Um, Dan Pinchbeck, husband and creative director, we're having really high-level conversations about the next game that we're in the middle of planning. We're moving offices, so I went to see a new office yesterday. Talking to James, the VFX artist, about how the final effects are embedding into the game. Next stage planning in general for the next game. Um, I'm going into the studio this Sunday to record the final choir session, so organising that with the studio, talking to the orchestrator. Um, it's, yeah, and trying to, you know, then think about the music and how that's working in the game, which at the moment is fairly low on that list. Right. It is demanding, <laughs> to say the least. <sighs> well, I did ask. I know, so. I'm really sorry. <laughs> And I'd like to tell you, at 7.01, I started writing an email. Um, but yeah, it's, um, we're like I say, we're a very small team making a very ambitious game. We always call it short form AAA. Everybody's gone to the rapture. I think that's probably the best description of it. The production standards are freakishly high for a team this size. Now, with a team that small, do you find that you're working maybe more than you would if you had a larger team in terms of you know the the stereotypical games industry crunch and and whatnot how have you been able to manage time with a smaller team but with increasingly ambitious goals i think small team working has its disadvantages and also its benefits and one thing that really suits us well is that we're incredibly agile we can move quickly because we're all together in the same room we can iterate really quickly, we can have discussions really quickly, and it isn't now we have to loop in the extra 15 people in the other office, you know, in another location. We can talk very, very quickly. But on the other hand, because we are small and we're making this big game, there are a certain amount of tasks to be done in a day that need doing, so it does put pressure on the team. Um, one thing that I thought it might be interesting to share is that Dan and I last year wrote what we call the Chinese Room Ethos, and it's about how the team can expect it to be treated, um, and it's very wide-ranging, but the last thing on the list that is probably the most important thing on the list is, um, reading it now, we see crunch as failure, and we really, really try and protect the team um, I think sometimes at the cost to ourselves, me and Dan, but people here have lives, they have the right to a life, we want them to exercise, to see the world, to see their families, some of them have young children. It's a really, really unhealthy culture that we've, you know, everyone's talking a lot about at the moment, 
and we don't want to be a part of that and we don't want to contribute to that and that is fundamental to our ethics I suppose of how we run the company and I don't think it's healthy and I don't think it makes a better game I think it's dare I say quite a macho male culture of somehow this epic journey gets us through to a better place I don't agree so many studies have been done on productivity and how that falls exponentially after a certain amount of time and I think it's a law of diminishing returns and I think as well the kind of games we make and the kind of music I make it's so outward facing in terms of it's inspired by the real world and if you don't give the team the opportunity to experience that real world then you're diminishing what they can bring to the game. Yeah I've noticed on working on a couple of titles uh, recently everyone gets so wrapped up in the game that you know, all of those inspirations that you had prior to kind of vanish. Um, you know, you're not playing games very much. I, I'm not listening to music very much. Um, and you have to, f or I have to find time to build that in, which seems so strange. Um, but for it to be such an important part of inspiring your creativity, it seems like we miss that a lot in, in not allowing ourselves to those continued inspirations as we work. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. And I just don't think, and this is going to be a really contentious thing to say, that if you plan well, there's no reason why it should be so disastrously crunchy at the end. And we are doing longer hours than we were doing, but we've always done a nine to five day with an hour lunch. It's seven hour day. It's short for the games industry. Um, the team yeah. are probably working till seven or eight at night most <clears throat> days at the moment. It's not ideal, but it's not midnight. They're still going home, they're having dinner, they're seeing their families, they're going to the gym. And it's really funny that when we delivered Beta a few weeks ago, Sony were like, we delivered it like two days early, and Sony were like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why is it here? And we were like, well, because is I didn't come... Wrong? Because I don't come from the games industry, I assumed that when we set that date, that was the date we were working for. But it's interesting that there's this implied expectation that you actually won't hit that date. So, wow. yeah, it's interesting how it's almost set into the schedules that, yeah, it's a bit movable that date. And that's not just with Sony. That's obviously, I think that's game industry wide. But, yeah. We want to deliver on time, and we want to finish this game. Well, we haven't talked about music at all yet, but I, I'm, uh, but I'm hugely fascinated in the the studio management side of things, and you just don't really get that perspective from who is also a composer very often. So no, sorry, I was just going to say that for me, those two things link inextricably with the music that I make with the Chinese Room because I know the game and the development and everything about it so well, it just completely, for me, feeds into that creative process. So wrapping around to music now, as the last couple of games have, have increased in uh, ambition, uh, resources, and then your position as studio head, how has your music writing job changed since Dear Esther? I think it's just changed to an unrecognisable amount, actually. I, I'd never even played a game when I did the music for Dear Esther. I had no idea, essentially, what I was doing, technically. 
Dan and I worked together to emotionally express what we wanted to say through the game and with the music. But it wasn't a traditional game music soundtrack. And I think in some ways that was to its benefit. Um, I think ignorance can not always, but sometimes be a kind of powerful creative tool because you don't adhere to the rules that you're supposed to be following. And because I didn't know what those rules were, I just was able to kind of, it was an emotional outpouring. Um, so it functions very much filmically, I would say. It's linear, it um, has a narrative journey, um, but it wasn't interactive. And I didn't even know about interactive music at that point. Pigs took me a little further down that journey of how to craft music within a game. But for me, Rapture is me growing up as a games composer. I've gone from a dribbling, toddler, ig ig ignorant <laughs> infant, and I'm probably around teenage stage with Rapture right now. Just very angsty and sullen. Very much so, very much so. I slam the doors. I say, you're not the master of me. I didn't ask to be born. <laughs> um, but this for me is game music hopefully at its best where the player feels like that audio journey has entirely been crafted for them but it's still a strong narrative and emotional experience and that for me it's so hard to do both it's so hard to write as you know interactive music that can still be strong that isn't wallpaper that isn't loops there aren't any loops in rapture um the music system is very complicated but hopefully the player doesn't need to know any of that. It will just sit as a beautiful emotional journey. Yeah, one of the things I remember hearing uh, Austin Wintery talk about with Journey is that the, the implementation worked as well as it did because he played the game every day for three years. And you know he would get a build in the morning and play that part of the game. And if it didn't work right, then he'd write something differently. But, but that that implementation should feel and did feel in the game as natural as it did just as a result of... Uh, things feeling right and not being technically fancy or complicated but it just felt which is it's hard it's hard to figure out and the other thing that I'm very very fortunate with is that my music and um, mine and Adam's audio design can um, feed into the design visual design process of the game so if I need some more time for a cue and I think it can sit well and it deserves it I can say to Andrew, our designer, can we extend this space a little bit? Can we move this thing? And I think a lot of composers don't have that luxury afforded to them. And I think I feel very, very grateful that I get that opportunity, that I'm not always responding to the world, but that actually I can make design changes in the world that inform the music. Now, there's a very kind of low-level understanding or, or appreciation of what interactive music is. I'm finding anyway amongst game designers, it's like we need a section, an attack section, and it ramps up and the drums build, and then when the battle's over, then it fades back down into this kind of low ambient thing. And, and I mean, that's kind of what people think of outside of audio circles when they think about interactive music. Um, so with a game like Rapture that obviously doesn't have battles or gunplay, um, what are the interactive elements that you're considering as you're writing and then as implementation takes place in the game? So I can explain a little bit about sort of technically how the music's working, if that is any interest to you, which hopefully will answer that question. Yes. 
Um, so we have um, four different types of music and audio essentially in Rapture. Um, we have unique cues which sit under specific um, action or dialogue. They will always play at that point, kind of effectively acting as film music cues. So they're giving that emotional sense. It's kind of scored so when I felt something was important or a theme needed bringing in that the unique music could function in that way. We have travelling music, which is the interactive music in the game. Um, and that can be split horizontally and vertically. So I wrote it in chunks, kind of quite traditionally, and then those can sit in any order. And then instrumentally, we can pick things out. So there's no action as such, you know, we kind of, there's a lot of walking and thinking in Rapture, but there are places where we emotionally want to swell the experience in an audio way for the player. So there are four states within that travelling music of different varieties of um, kind of how intense that experience feels for the player. So as you're walking around, the music can swell, it can pull back. Um, we also have procedural audio, which is really, really exciting. So Adam's made um, an audio system that again is responsive to the player, but the music that I wrote feeds into his procedural audio. So he has a bed of his beautiful analog, gorgeous retro ambience that is floating around in the world. And then it's picking parts of the music feeding it back to the player. So there's a lot of things going on. And one of the reasons that I've worked so closely with Adam was because I always feel this, it sits very separately for me, music and audio often in games. And I wanted to make something that was running seamlessly where the audio becomes the music and the music sitting within the audio world of the game. So hopefully if we've got it right and we're still testing it, you get this beautiful blend of music and sound. And it's kind of almost quite soundscapey, kind of quite experimental at times. So there's a lot of stuff going on. I hope it works. <laughs> Which actually reminds me that I did leave one of our main points of the music out. Thank you for reminding me that we also have character themes. There are six main characters in the game. Each character has their own song. So the one that you heard on the SoundCloud track that Sony released recently is uh, Wendy's song, The Morning Tree. So um, they play at the beginning of, it's an open world game, so we don't have levels, but we do have areas within the game. So every time a player walks into a new area, they'll get the um, theme of that person. And again, like you say, it's kind of how those things then meld into the world, which has been the interesting thing to implement. I know that uh, as, a, as a studio and conceptually with this game, you're very focused on a specific period of time. Are there, are there composers or pieces of music from that era that you referenced at least internally as you were writing? It's interesting because the music has really taken a huge journey since I started writing it because it, the game set in 1984 and originally I thought I was going to make a real 
synth opera. And it's interesting, as the game world came into being, that although it's set in 1984 and it's cited very specifically then, we've almost made a very, very timeless England. And I was listening to um, a lot of Vaughan Williams when I was listening, when I was writing the score. And what I like about Vaughan Williams is it's, everyone says it's the most English music, it's the most quintessentially English music you can ever have. But actually, he was writing for an England that never existed. And it evokes this nostalgia for a world that never actually was. And that was the inspiration for me, for Rapture, is that it didn't overtly have to sound like the 1980s. It was just the wrong and most, in a way, an obvious choice. But actually this music is just cited in a psychogeographic space that could be a thousand years ago, it could be now, it's just, it's timeless. And what Adam has very cleverly done with the procedural audio elements of the game is that he's brought the 80s very, very subtly into the world. So he's fed everything into cassette tapes and then processed it back out again. Like I say, it has a very specific 80s sound without re overtly referencing things. So I think that's a, a really tough thing to do, actually. And it's provided this great link within the timeless music that I've written. With the audio, he cited it very, very specifically. And that's the thing I'm probably most proud of with the audio and the music is the very subtle time and place rather than being absolutely banged over the head with it. Yeah, because you're right. That would seem like it would be an easy choice to go 80s retro synth. And um, in, in a sort of post-apocalyptic landscape story-wise, that doesn't seem too far off the mark. Um, so how far along did you get down that road before you realized this is never going to work the way that it did in my head? I realized it when I wrote a track Abs everyone I played with them and it was like real Vangelis 80s kind of Blade Runner-esque proper proggy yeah. kind of synth and everyone was like oh my god and so they were like this track is amazing and everyone on the team were going oh I absolutely love it and we put it into the game world everyone just went oh no that's horrible and it was so interesting it was one of those classic cases <laughs> where everything was shouting this should work and it just didn't work. It was horrendous. And at that point, I thought, I'm at the pinnacle musically of what is a really, really cool track, but not for this game. And I just overnight went, we're done. It's not going to happen. And I don't want it to happen. And it's not right. And um, then uh, last year for E3, Sony wanted us to put... Um, I like have a little test really of the music and how it was working. So I got to work with Aileen Manahan Thomas, who's the vocalist on the final soundtrack, um, a pianist um, and a violinist. And everything just suddenly clicked. We went, this is the sound for the world. It's English, it's core anglais, it's um, beautiful folk violin, it's... Um, the choral tradition, it's all those things that make England sound like England. And it was the right, I believe, I have to believe it now that it was the right call because it's too late to change it, Dave. Um, but I actually, <laughs> I'm going to stand by that decision. 
And that was the other thing, actually, that you probably heard from uh, the morning tree from that cue is folk has played a really, really large part in this score as much as Vaughan Williams and other kind of English classical traditions and Elgar. It comes from English folk and that was really important to me to say we have this bucolic, rustic um, countryside and a wonderful musical tradition that comes from that, so let's use that. And I'm really pleased, actually. And Dan wrote the most extraordinary, beautiful words for all those songs for each character. He's so clever at weaving the narrative into the music, and that's something that we've always done with our games. The music is telling stories, of course, through the emotion and the way you navigate through a space, but it's also directly in stories being told to you with lyrics, and I love that. So perhaps out of context, but will we ever hear the Vangelis version of Everyone's Gone to the Rapture? We were going to put it into the game and then we were like, oh, this is when developers start getting really horrible with their Easter eggs and going, it's just one. It's just one. (laughs) So at the moment we're working with um, Sony Santa Monica's community department for, you know, how we market the game. And they've had some amazing ideas and we're going to have a separate website. So I think I might sneak in to their output because it'd be nice for people to hear it and I think it's interesting um we're hopefully working with the Victorian Albert Museum in London who are an amazing um, museum and they're going to be doing um hopefully an exhibition about games and they've been asking us to keep um iterations of things that we've done which actually I think most game development companies are really bad at because you're working so fast you're going bin it bin it bin it but they asked me to do music from how it started to where it is now and it was so interesting for me as a composer because I'm you know what it's like you get no time for self-reflection as a practitioner you just go next job next job but hearing this journey through all the different styles and iterations and genres that it had gone through was really really fascinating and showed how much work it takes to get there to get the thing and if I'd have stopped a year ago it would have been good but I think we've achieved excellence, and that's just through iteration. That's the Chinese room motto, I think, is just... Of course, you've got to know when it's finished. You can't keep going forever. But never stopping at good, making it excellent. Adam, the sound designer, always says, pain is temporary, art is forever. <laughs> that's our unofficial motto. <laughs> I think, when was the last time you... Or, or the time that you spoke at GDC? Was that 2013? Or 2012? No, it's 2013. I was meant to be coming out last year and I got really ill and had to cancel and I was gutted. I'm definitely coming this year. Yeah, I've only been to three GDCs so far, but for some reason, your talk still stands out as something that, um, I don't know, just I guess embodies what I hope a GDC talk to be. And I'm not sure if that was, you know, your personal journey as a musician or just a, a really in-depth look at Dear Esther or the combination of the two. But um, I know I don't just speak for myself when I say that everyone would be very interested to hear a follow-up sort of GDC talk about Rapture. That's so kind so of you to happens. say. Thank you. I'd, we'd love to come out. We'll definitely be putting a talk in. I'm fortunate enough to have been asked 
to be a part of um, the San Francisco Conservatory of Music um, next year in March. I'm going to be flying out anyway during GDC week to do a masterclass and to talk to the students and to do a lecture on gay music, which is hugely exciting. I feel very, very honoured. Um, and yeah, talking, you know, about the travelling music and unique and character themes and procedural audio, I think it would make a really interesting talk. I, again, would say that because I've lived, slept, eaten, breathed it. But um, I like talks where I can get something, you know, that's why they do the takeouts. You want to get something tangible from a talk. And I did put a huge amount of work into the Dear Esther talk because I think if people have taken the time to come and listen to you you want to give them something useful and personal and real and meaningful and yeah I think Rapture again has been such a labour of love um, I hope it would be interesting for people to hear about how we got to where we are now. Well definitely from your perspective and then now hearing t you talk about Adam's work I know that that would be really interesting as well between what I've seen him post about on Twitter and some of the things from uh, the developers of No Man's Sky, it seems like there's a lot of this push towards procedurally generated audio, which is which is helpful on a, a on a technological level, I guess, in terms of not needing as much bandwidth and space and content, but um, but more interesting creatively to be able to to have these experiences that are entirely unique from one playthrough to the next. Yeah, absolutely. That's the exciting thing for us. And it just allowed us to support the player journey so much more smoothly, ironically, for something that is unique every time. Um, yeah, I just love the idea that every player is going to get something different. That's magical, I think. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I appreciate you sticking around for an extra hour. I don't know how I missed that Brighton summertime. I mean, I know we do weird things with daylight savings over here, but I have never heard of summertime. Yeah, it's really, really complicated. It's led to many misunderstood calls between us and Sony because either you're on summertime or we are daylight saving. It's really, really confusing. So I'm really, I had no idea you were going to get up at five o'clock. I feel so bad. <laughs> oh, no, I was planning to get up at six. I'd say, yeah, the Chinese room ethos is that we treat everybody so well and with such kindness. And actually, apart from Dave, who has to get up at midnight. <laughs> well, I'm actually surprised that I haven't had a child or two come out and, and, and enter the frame at some point in this conversation. I always worry when things are too quiet. It normally means like paint is being poured out of a can, the telly's been knocked over. You should be nervous about how you haven't been interrupted. <laughs> I tell you, I was out of town for work two weeks ago, and during that time, um, I have four-year-old twins, and, and, my, and my daughter broke her leg on the trampoline, and my son dropped a weight on his finger and broke it. So I'm trying to work in Florida, and I've got two kids back home in casts, like actually in casts. And then I come home, and they're just this like hobbling, gimpy mess of children that I left behind. Oh, that's horrendous. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I mean, they've been very brave about it, and you'd never know for how they're still continuing to gallop around the house and everything. But, oh kids like uh, I, I don't know I, I remember when I first went to GDC that I felt so out of place being able to to run at the same pace that everyone else is because I just don't have 
I don't have the capacity anymore like I used to. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm up early or I'm up late, but the ability to to work early or work late just it doesn't happen anymore for me. Do you know what though? I think I'm so much fo- more focused since I had Oscar. You you haven't got the luxury of going. Well, I'll just get up at eleven today and then I'll work till three a.m. and you know, go to the pub and do this and do that. And I see people's lives on Twitter and it just makes me laugh because I just think my life is scheduled and I'm sure yours is too, to within a degree. You know, everything has to be planned. It has to be put in schedule. And it is a choice. I read articles with composers who say, you know, I'm in the studio seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And I kind of think, yes, that would have been an alternative path that I could have taken Yes, my career has ostensibly suffered for the fact that I'm a mum. Would I change it? No. And that's the choice I've made. And I don't think it's fair to say it's a sacrifice because Oscar actually didn't ask to be born, as I was saying before, with my teenage life. And it's a choice that Dad and I took. And again, I just think it makes you, without wanting to evangelise about parenthood, I think it makes you a better person, a better composer, it just feeds your experience. I think you feel things so differently and so deeply when you have children. It's like a layer of skin is removed when you become a parent. And it's quite useful, I think, that for the creative process, that sensitivity to the world. So, again, it has its ups and its downs. I will say that Oscar always gets ill when I have like an important meeting. There's some kind of switch that seems to get flicked. At least he didn't break his bones while you were gone. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You win. I win. You do win. I'm going to give you the medal for most harassed, fatigued parent. You've got it. That's all I want. You've earned my respect. Ah, <laughs> oh, oh. then, then this whole process was, was worth it. Yeah, that's the thing though, isn't it? You kind of go... I wouldn't have my life any other way. You know, and, and that's what I think I didn't notice starting to go to GDC, but I'm noticing now is that whether it's being a, a parent or some other obscure, specific personal detail, everyone is is coming from a very different place and that informs how they write and how they work and, and who they are as a person. So I know that a lot of people coming into the industry see people that have been around for a while and think that that's the only way to be. That's kind of why we, why why Jim and I, who's, who's not here now, but started doing this podcast is we just wanted to to talk to people and and get maybe more personal stories about, you know, not what DAW they use or what mics they like, but um, but what their journey has been like, so that everyone can listen to this and realize, you know, I'm not so far off the mark. Yeah, absolutely. I think we still need to work harder at being a more inclusive industry on so many levels, not just. It's interesting when when Dan and I came to GDC 13, we had to bring Oscar because we didn't have childcare for a week. So we flew him over. Dan and I's talks were scheduled at the same time in some cruel twist of fate. But they they wouldn't let me bring Oscar to my talk because he was under 18 and he wasn't allowed in. But now I see that they are planning childcare for next year's GDC. So it is slowly changing. They are listening to feedback saying, there is a place, of course, for the young, hungry people who can, you know, fancy footloose and fancy free, but there are also people like us who want to be part of those events. And it's to the detriment of those events if they don't find ways of including us. And I just think we're at the very beginning of a really long journey with 
accepting women into the industry. I mean, this is a whole different conversation, but ethnic diversity of tolerance for that. And I think we have a long way to go. And last year, I thought I was going to leave the games industry because it was just so horrible being a woman. And I've become a little bit more defiant now thinking I can't leave. I have to, like it or not, fly the flag for that. And we have um, Alex Graham, who's our amazing um, environment artist. She's doing amazing work. I wanted to be able to say that our women that I can look to within this industry that, not that she, yeah, she's aspiring to be me, that's not what I'm saying, but that she has those people like me that are older and more experienced um, because she is absolutely invaluable and I want more people like her. So let's just keep going, let's fly the flag, keep pushing. I think things are better now than they were a year ago, despite the horrifically ugly period. Um, I think things are better. I think everyone is, at, at the very least, more accepting of discussion and, and open to hear different perspectives. I know that I've seen GDC proper change in the last couple of years, that um, you know the, the, the types of talks and um, the types of events that are held during GDC, it's, it's changing, and it's, it's going to take longer than a year or two to fix, but it's encouraging to be in an industry where you can see that change happening, um, slow as it is. Yeah. And it's, I think, beholden on all of us not to be complacent, saying the problem is with other people. I think we can all look to ourselves. I mean, you know, Dan and I are employers. We have to make a tangible and real commitment rather than, I do find Twitter a little bit words not action and I think we live of course we live through our words but we also live through our deeds and I think we have to all take that commitment forwards in a serious way power here, here. <laughs> cheers this is actually <coughs> vodka no it's not it's water <laughs> so is mine <laughs> you are really drinking too early Dave <laughs> it is uh... water to one as we say the sun is nearly over the yard arm did you have that phrase? Mm -mm. That means it's no. um, it's, a, it's a nautical phrase where the sun has got to a certain position in the day where you're allowed to drink. The English use it for all kinds of <laughs> alcoholic yeah. behaviour. I think we we've missed a whole era of of nautical sailing metaphors in America. We just don't life. do that. <laughs> uh, I don't even know who I am. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's really appreciated. You've asked really interesting, lovely questions and it's nice to connect with other nice, talented people within the industry. It means a lot, actually. It's quite oh, a, thank you very much. It's quite an isolated life, as you know, really. I sit in my room, well, not at the moment, but, you know, it's nice to talk to other people doing good stuff. Likewise. Well, hopefully we'll get to meet at uh, a GDC next year. That would be so nice. With our little flasks of vodka. <laughs> chin chin. That'd be really lovely. So I'll say until March. <laughs> until March. Alright, so we've all got much, much more from her to look forward to as the game comes out uh, in the next month or so. So keep an eye out for that and uh, for all of her future work from the Chinese room. And hopefully we get her and her team back 
at GDC next year to talk more about it. But that will do it for us today. And hopefully we'll be able to do these more, more often. Uh, no guarantees. But again, we, we love reaching out to people that we don't get to talk to very often or maybe we haven't heard from in a while and hear their stories. Uh, sometimes we might not necessarily know about those stories that need to be told. So feel free to reach out to us as well. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter and SoundCloud and iTunes. Uh, but please reach out to us if you've got an interesting person that you'd like profiled or maybe yourself, you've, you've got a game that you scored recently or worked on. It doesn't have to be music specifically. Uh, and we can, we can chat about, uh, about your project and learn a little bit more about you and just share the, the wealth of knowledge that we have in the game audio industry. All right. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.